Yeah, Jeffrey, I'm sorry. Right, everybody say hi to Joshua. He had brief he had brief internet access for a little while, so I was able to to uh, help him a little bit. But um, is he back? Is he? He's not here. He's still in Afghanistan, but uh, but I, I don't. I, I was expecting him back in July. But all right, we are um, we're starting the the last plague, and today it's gonna it's gonna be a, several, a couple of weeks on the on the last one. We're going to talk about the announcement today. Let's just read uh, chapter 11. Before we do that, where, where were we? And don't say 9. Um, before the 10th plague, what, what, how had it ended? How had, it, how had the passage ended? We're, we're in Exodus 11 today, uh, 1 through 10. We were in uh, Exodus 10 last week at the very end, Plague of Darkness. How did it end? What was going on? Just, just to recap. Did the Pharaoh let him go? Sort of? He o- the kids and the um, cattle. Well, he offered to let them go without the cattle. But he, he said, take the kids too, right? There's that big declaration. The Lord be with you if I ever let your little ones go. And was, I'll, I'll admit that God actually exists if I let your little ones go. And then he got to the point with the darkness where he says, uh, let the kids go. Yeah. Um, but something still goes on. And he, he says something to Moses. What did he say? Get away from me. Take care. Never to see my face again. Don't see my face again on that day. What? Die. You will die. Okay, he's in darkness making this declaration. I can't see your face anyway. There's a whole thing. He's in the, this is the dialogue going on between Pharaoh and Moses, right? Okay. And the last line we have is verse 29. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. All right, look at chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Where is Moses in this passage? In front of Pharaoh. Had he left? After the ninth plague, after that last line? 
We have indication he left. He's still in front of Pharaoh, right? There's some disagreement on this, but I think it's a pretty strong indication that he's still... This is the same conversation they're having. What's weird about it? While he's in front of Pharaoh, God starts talking to him. Now think about that. He's getting on-the-fly revelation from God as he's in front of Pharaoh. Was it audible? To, to Moses, maybe? What would be the purpose of it being audible to everyone? So that Pharaoh would know that God is God. I don't know if it was audible to Pharaoh. I think that would be really cool if it were. Um, here we have Moses still in the presence of Pharaoh right after Pharaoh threatens his life if he sees him again, right? And if he's still in front of Pharaoh, then we've got some problems. Because we've got some time sequence things going on here. Verses 1 through 3. If it's audible to everyone, what does that convey to the Egyptians? What does that tell them? time, um, you have this, well, maybe this is just a weird coincidence. I mean, you have the break between the boils and the hail, which I think pretty clear break there in the sequence of events, even if you were trying to rationalize it. But still somewhere in the doubting heart, there's going to be, maybe this is, we're just running on a really bad series of luck here. Okay? And then he's sitting there in the dark with Moses threatening his life, and the next thing he hears is, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. If this is audible to Pharaoh, in the dark, what do you think the response might be to that one? Was there a response? Was a word spoken by Pharaoh here? No. no. Before, when Moses had come to Pharaoh, he had given him an opportunity to repent, let the people go. If you don't, it's the if-then clause. If you don't let them go, the plague's going to happen. The darkness... He didn't leave him an opportunity to repent. He said, you, you will have, you, I will not see your face again. You do rest in judgment. And then he goes right into the tenth plague, the final plague, one more plague. And this audible, if it's audible to Pharaoh, um, you think at that point they're thinking, this could be just really a string of bad luck. What are the words that he uses? Yeah, I looked down the corridors of time, and I think there's some really bad stuff coming from Egypt. They, all their firstborn are going to die. I'm not really sure. Just let them know that's going to happen. I will bring one more plague. I'm doing it. What is that a statement of? Power. Okay. 
can we say sovereignty maybe? Um, it's a clear statement of sovereignty. God brought all of these plagues. He's going to bring the next one also. Kevin? Yes, sir. If this was back-to-back, you know, he ends that plague and then he starts the new plague, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times in battle it's like, okay, we're going to go to the battle, now we're going to recess, we're going to go back, we're going to replan and re-strategize, figure out our next move, and it's going to be strategic, we're going to think through it. If, if this is back-to-back and Moses is still in Pharaoh's presence, mm-hmm. there's, I mean, he's just, he's got the throttle down, he's moving straight over. Yeah. He's, it's confident, it's forward, it's, you know. The, is there any, is there any, yeah. Um, no doubt. Yeah, is there any, is there any kind of a, I don't know, kind of, say what's a proper term for this because he's the meekest man on the earth um, any kind of hesitation on the part of Moses here he kind of well this you know he goes right into thus says the Lord in, in verses uh, you know uh, where he starts it up uh, in verse 4 think about the contrast here Egyptian theology is polytheistic, many gods. And, and some say it's probably the most polytheistic culture that the history of man has ever seen. I mean, they, they believe that the forces of nature were the incarnation of their gods. So every little thing, there's a god under every rock, you know. Some, some current forms of TBN say there's a demon under every rock. But the, the Egyptians were, there's a god under every rock. Um... Different levels of deity, sure. There are certain greater gods and lesser gods and all of that. In their worldview, nature is the personification of those gods. Yet, by this declaration, and what they've seen from plagues 1 to 9, nature is at the beck and call of this one Hebrew god. Moses never mentions anybody else. Moses doesn't use the term Elohim for plurality of gods. He uses Yahweh, covenant god. Right? All right. What does he say? What does God say will happen as a result of this one final plague? What's gonna what's what's the result here? How? There should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never been or ever will be. He's gonna let them go. the last what's completely completely, right the very last word of verse one says completely what had gone on before what had pharaoh offered he tried to make bargains he tried to say well you can do this but you can't go all the way or you can go this far and take only these right you can go go don't go out this far don't take your kids and animals okay don't don't take your animals god says this is the one he's going to drive you out he's going to drive you out completely um all right there's not going to be any condition here. There's no limitation or restriction. They're going out completely. But literally, it says, he will certainly drive you out. Yeah, by the way, we're going to take all your gold. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's like he's on the fly revelation. Oh, by the way, I'm taking your gold. If this is audible. <laughs> I wonder if he's got the little gold beard thing going on. Yeah, I'll take that too. Um, <laughs> this is a fulfillment, isn't it? Of a prophecy? Of a, you know, God just kind of 
predicts that this is seeing the seeing all the course of human history. This is probably going to happen. Um, Genesis fifteen fourteen. Look at Genesis fifteen fourteen. There was some old guy he said something to that might relate to this. Somebody read it for me, would you? Genesis fifteen fourteen. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. They'll come out with great possessions. All right. You have slaves. They're leaving. They're being emancipated. Not from a governmental declaration, but from God's working within the... And as part of that freedom, they plunder, not by the sword, but how does, how does that happen? Why would they do that? These Egyptians despise the Hebrews. I mean, they did since, J- since Joseph's day. We don't want to eat with them because they, you know, they deal with sheep and stuff. And, and they despise them as slaves, less than human, other than. And yet, what does it say? How, why would they give them their stuff? Well, it's interesting that Moses spoke to the people, not through not to Pharaoh, to the people. Okay. He had the people speak to the, the people. And in, mine, in my Bible, it says, The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, mm-hmm. and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials. What kind of God has power to give favor to his people from their enemies? He not only changes the heart of his people, he doesn't just raise up the, um, the, the king and, 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 and harden his heart so that his wonders are being revealed, which it says again and again and again. But he then changes their heart 180 to give them stuff for their favor to bless them out of their enemy's wealth. Who does that? Now I'm clicking through all of my, you know, what I've read in the few years I've been reading about mythology and I can't think of any other culture where that's the case. Every other culture, it's my God was more powerful than your God because we put all your, your, the men of your town to death and we took your stuff, right? God comes, he changes the heart of these people to give favor to his enslaved people and plunders them not by the sword, but because he conquers their heart. Before he kills the kids. <laughs> They're still being judged. They're not, this is not a redemptive act here. They're being judged. You're right. But that's not natural. What else does it say about Moses? Did you do the same thing for Moses among the people? The servants of Pharaoh highly regarded him. This man that they despised is couldn't speak very well in court. Stunk. He's been out in the desert 40 years. Highly regarded. Probably hadn't shaved. Highly regarded. That's why. <laughs> That's why they, they envied his beard because it wasn't gold. It was a real man here. Respect anybody with a good I, I think you're probably right about that. Um, 
highly regarded not only by the Egyptians, the servants of Pharaoh, who else? All the people. That would include who? The Hebrews. What was their initial reaction to Moses? Why are you doing this to us? You made it worse. You made us stink to Pharaoh. Well, you stink anyway, but you made us stink to Pharaoh. They were really uh, upset with him for stirring the pot. We got a good thing going. We can deal with some of this oppression. You know, they're going to leave us alone and not kill us every day. But God gives, literally, it says, He gave the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians. As it relates to the Hebrews. And then he elevates Moses in the sight of the Egyptians and the Hebrews who had been doubtful before. What does that show you? What does that do for the people of God? Where are they? Where they're moving from, from doubt to, to trust in God's man. You see? That's short-lived. But it's there. Who's not mentioned? Pharaoh is not mentioned. So Moses begins with the divine formula in verse 4. What does he say? Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, the covenant name. God's not bringing, you know, plants that walk across the earth to, you know, get it. He's not bringing locusts. He's not bringing gnats. He's not bringing any other thing. What's the plague this time? By whom? I will go out into Egypt. God himself is coming to execute judgment. There's no second party intermediary here. He's doing it. God is going out into Egypt. When is he going? What does it say? About midnight? Uh, literally, it says, in the middle of the night. What do we remember about the, the cycle of day and night in Egyptian mythology? In their theology. Ra was the sun god. Amun-Ra, I think at this time it's probably a combination. He's the sun god, right? So he's blessing, wealth, prosperity, Name it, claim it in the name of Ra. Um, and when it, the sun goes down, what happens? What's Ra doing? He's sleeping. You're on your own at night. You, you have no protection from Ra at night. He's in the underworld. There's kind of this cycle of life thing, Lion King thing going on. Um, and he's asleep. You're on your own, Egyptians. So when is God coming? the time they most fear in their theology. He's coming in the darkness. Um, because, you know, Ra's asleep. We have no protection. There's no hope of anything. What does that say about the God of the Hebrews? He does not sleep or slumber, it would say later. Uh, he doesn't sleep. And he's always working. And he's always protecting his people. Don't you wish you had him? What's going to be struck this time? The firstborn. Is anyone exempt? 
Now, the, the way that the the way that the, the language is set up there, the um, from the from the king that sits on his throne to the handmaid behind the hand mill, um, that that phrase uh, of of the, the the mill worker was considered in, in Egyptian literature to be a sign of the poorest of the poor. It's a merism. We've talked about that before in Hebrew. They talk, you know, from the oldest to the youngest, from the um, tallest to the shortest, from the you know hairiest to the baldest, whatever. It's it's this a great all people. Yes. Then it says, "But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark, any man or animal." Right. So that's a distinction that he makes. Before we get there, what happens to the Egyptians? There, this. The firstborn are, are, are killed. What happens from, what, what comes out of Egypt from that? What does it say? A great cry. Do you remember in chapter 1, lo, those many moons ago, when we talked about the Hebrew uh, cry to God from being oppressed, right? And, and, and he says to Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. Here, you have not crying from grief, this is an Egyptian cry to their gods for help. And the gods are silent. Notice the contrast. The Hebrew call to God, the cry to God for help, and he answers, and boy does he. But there's a, there's a distinction made. Yahweh continues to protect. He protects his people in verse 7. Not even, literally it says, not even a dog will sharpen his tongue against the Hebrews. Some have argued, and I don't know, this may be the case, that, that this is a subtle reference to a, a god of death and embalming, uh, Anubis. You see the mummy? Yeah. He's got a dog head. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to talk about the salvation of dogs. <clears throat> no, all dogs go to heaven. There's no need for salvation. Right. Um, so you have Anubis possibly being referenced here as not being able to exact vengeance on the Hebrews himself by killing the Hebrews and, and he can't match. It's kind of like the situation you have with the Egyptian magicians who are able to do the snake thing. Anubis can't kill the Hebrews, but God is slaughtering specifically the firstborn. It's not just a, a, a an indiscriminate kind of thing. The word that he uses here I will make a distinction among my people and your people, among the Hebrews and the, and the Egyptians. It, the verb literally uh, could be translated to treat differently, to discriminate. God's not PC. He's discriminating between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Had the Hebrews done anything? Stinketh. Other than stinketh? Had they done anything to deserve this? They doubted. That's good. That's always a good start. Well, doubting is faithlessness. Right. The best obedience is to have faith in God. So they didn't have that. They whined. They whined. They doubted. They sinned. They sinned. And they made bricks without straw. And they made bricks. That, that was something. <laughs> to be able to do that, I guess, with a whip at your back. So, um, so why is he showing them mercy? Always a good answer in Sunday school. Uh, Jesus is, is, is usually the, the go-to. Um, why is he showing them mercy? He's giving them a chance. You know, 
Giving them a, a chance? To believe in him. Okay. No, he's just fulfilling his own word because he doesn't well, lie. that too. Well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I guess the ultimate big picture is Christ because sure. he, he's called these people out to be his people so that there's a bloodline to get all the way to Christ. Yeah. And so he said that he was going to keep them safe. He said that he was going to so, give his people... Uh, so I, I go to I go to Tammy, and I say, "Baby, how are you doing?" She says, "Why do you love me?" And I say, "Because I always a good answer in any situation." She says, "Why do you love me?" And I say, "Because I found you to be suitable for my purposes above all." How does that? How does that go over? Uh, how about how about this one? Because you're the best looking things that I've ever seen. Well, what's the problem with that? There may be a time when she's not the best looking thing because you know age happens. So love is conditional, right? Suitability may change. Love is conditional. What's the answer? The answer is I love you because I love you, right? Is that not the answer? Is that not the answer? I love you because I love you. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you think, if you tried to logically diagram that statement, I love you because I love you, it's a circle. It just goes around. Doesn't turn to Deuteronomy seven. Verse seven and eight. Why would he make a distinction? What does it say? It was because you just basically covered the land and people that I loved you. Is that what he says? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the, land, from the hand of Pharaoh. Was it because you were the most populated? What is he saying? He's saying to the people of his choosing, I love you because I love you. Where does love rest? On our performance? On the performance of the Hebrews? In God alone. Just talking about that. Um, it's a statement of God's sovereign, elective love. This is not a calculated thing. This is not some very academic thing. Well, of course, God elected them unto salvation. And da, 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 da. We don't talk about it that way. If we do, we need to not talk about it. This is a heart of love God has for his people, and it discriminates. Tammy, I love you just like I love every other woman up and down this planet. That's probably not going to go over very well. It's a discriminating love, right? In fact, that's the image that God uses to describe the love of Christ in the church. It's discriminating. 
which incidentally is why the marriage institution is so important. I, I never see any other relationship referred to that way. Where I love you because I love you. I employ you because you make me money. I get that. Um, I love you because I love you happens in really two places. One, husband and wife. Two, children. Parents and children. <clears throat> it's strained on that second one probably more sometimes. But, but that's, that's the importance of this election thing that we're looking at. This discrimination that we see. It's, it's based upon the love that rests in God alone. From his heart, his decision, his freedom to set, he used the word, set my love upon you. Do you ever think about God that way? I mean, God the Old Testament that way. You can just think of God the Old Testament when he ground swats all of them in Canaan and, you know, he's kind of a little war god. Actually says the Lord is a warrior. Actually, if you look in the New Testament, it says Jesus is a warrior too. He comes in the white horse and shoots out some kind of sword out of his mouth and, you know. There's, there's one book. It's one book playing out one theme. God loves his people. I don't think we get that. I don't think we dwell on that enough. Because we can talk about the five points of Calvinism. We can talk about the incarnation and kind of map it out, God, man, here's talking as a man, here's talking as a deity. And we can map out all the theology. Do you get it that he loves you because he loves you? I don't rest on that enough. That's why it's not works based. He's not going to love you more if you do well. Right. Right. And, and he disciplines even because he loves you. Okay. Kevin. Yes, sir. I'm still trying to wrestle with he loves you because he loves you because that's illogical to me. It is. I Welcome think, to uh, love. Hopefully I'm not derailing the conversation. But I'm sure I you think, will, but it's okay. I think that, that, that inside of the Trinity, the character of God is to love, and that's why he loves us. It's not, I think the statement, he loves you because he loves you, is, uh, it's more based off of his character, not because he loves you because he loves you. He, he loves you because he loves you means it's unconditional, not conditional. Right. That's what that statement means. Right. And it's not just a, I have decided to love you because I love you. This is a heartfelt thing, an emotive thing from the God of the universe. Do you, do you get that God feels emotion? Do, you, do, we, do we understand that? We're made his image, we feel emotion, he feels emotion, he feels it perfectly, we feel it imperfectly. He set his love upon his people is an emotive thing. He redeems our heads to think right. He redeems our emotions to be in line with his as well. What implications does that have for us in the church? It's not supposed to be conditional upon what somebody can give to us. Okay. It's supposed to be because God loved us and we love others. We love in accordance with, just like you were saying, that it's in accordance with God's character. Mm-hmm. And so in order to love perfectly, our character has to match that. So as he transforms our heart to think correctly and to have good character, the automatic outflowing of that is love and to love other people. Right. 
Right. Do we do that? We get how, how are we doing on that? Jesus. Oh, it's a good answer. And thank God he loves us because he loves us because I think we fail on the, uh, on the expression of that. Yeah. Go ahead, Ty. In marriage, Right. The emotions sometimes follow, yeah. based upon the faithfulness in the action. Okay, so so how, how is Moses loving Pharaoh here? How does he leave? He leaves in hot anger, it says. In fact, the literal translation of that is, I love this. This is These are words we don't use. With hot, scorching nose. <laughs> what does that mean? I, I don't know. Nose that's flaring. flaring nose on fire. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I think it's hilarious. Yeah, you know, the kids, I get mad at them. My nose is hot and scorching. <laughs> Right, you're right. The nostrils flare. Yeah, yeah we, we, we've seen that before. You're right. Okay. So, uh, let's, let's finalize a, just the narrative here. God strengthens the faith of Moses and Aaron by telling them that Pharaoh's refusal to let them go is his doing. And he can trust them. Because he loves them. Um, but why, does he, why is he hardening Pharaoh? He says it again. What's, the, what's he doing here? That... My wonders may be multiplied. He's, the hardness is so that those who are judged know by whom they are being judged. It's kind of why I tend to the understanding that it was an audible thing. He's making himself known here at the end. It's like this big, oh no, this was a real moment. You know, The colossal Egyptian, dope! You know, kind of things. <laughs> also, those who receive mercy take comfort that the one who is set his love on them can be trusted. He'll protect us. He does what we can't do for ourselves. And then he ends with a summary in verse 10. Um, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You would think that at this point you start hearing voices, okay, let them go, this is getting weird. Not so much. He still kept them. Even with the threat, okay, you're in darkness, I'm now going to kill your firstborn, your son. What, what does that mean, by the way? Who's the son of Pharaoh? What? He's the firstborn? But the lineage. What, of, of who? Uh, of Pharaoh. Of Pharaoh. Right. To become Pharaoh. And what do they view the Pharaoh as? God. So the firstborn of Pharaoh is the hope for the future. The hope that the, the incarnate deity of Pharaoh will be on the throne in the future. The cycle will continue. That gets messed with royally here, right? Your hope is gone. The dynasty will die. Your, or they say it's on doubt. Now be your, your dynasty. Um, so you have this summary here in verse 10 of, of Moses and Aaron doing all these wonders. And then the next section goes into more detail on the Passover. And we'll, we'll talk about the Passover feast and what's involved that uh, next week.
I want to go through a couple of things. It's, we're running up on 10 o'clock. We've got probably another 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> Jesus says this in John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. How do we abide? How do you, what does that mean to abide in God's love? To remain, to stay. How do, how do we do that? What is that? What is, it? is there a method or five point plan? I, I'm, I need a schematic. How do we do that? You need to wake up, check your Facebook, go to your quiet time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, starting out with Facebook, probably not the best way, I would think, to. The God page on Facebook. I don't. I don't. I don't like that. Anyway, um, but that's not. We're not going to do that. Okay. How do we abide? What does verse ten say? Let's go there. Let's go rather than Facebook uh, theology. What does verse ten say? I think abide in the love of Christ. We're in John fifteen, nine and ten. But I thought he loved us because he loved us. Does it necessarily mean we can just do whatever we want? But it's, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Doesn't mean the love's not there. It means you. Jude would say, "Keep yourself in the love of God." Mm-hmm. Say it that way. Obedience to God isn't necessarily deeds, though. It's more of faith. It's it's putting your trust in Christ and reading His Word and praying and believing. It's not it's not necessarily what you do. Because you can do the right stuff and have the wrong motive. Right. But if you're believing and trusting in God, we'll generally be following His rules. Because rules aren't just rules with God, are they? Right. Uh, he who said, do not murder, also said, do not commit adultery. Right? Is that what it says in James? If you break one of these, you've broken them all, because he who said, do not murder, also said, commit. What is that saying? It's saying the rules aren't rules. They're expression of the character of God. So if I'm obedient to Christ, I'm expect I'm I am I am loving and being in the 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 character and reflecting the character and person of Christ. That's how we abide in his love. But what does it also say in verse 16? I, I I love this verse when I'm talking with people who don't believe in, in sovereign election. What do you do with that? Well, you know, he chose us because he saw down the corridors of time and da 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 da. He chose us because we, we you know we we had we had faith. He chose it so you did something. I love you because you had faith. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And appointed you, positioned you, called you, that you should go and bear fruit. And not just fading fruit, that your fruit should abide. What kind of eternal fruit is, 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 is born? It's God's fruit. God's eternal. And he works through us to bear eternal works. Uh, um, 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of the love of Christ is the, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The, the, the Father sends the Son, the Son reflects the person of the invisible God, it says in other places. In the same way, Christ loves the church, the church loves Christ, the, the Son sends the church, right? go into all the world. And the church reflects the nature sacrificially, like Jesus reflected the nature of the Father sacrificially. The church reflects the nature of Christ sacrificially and abides in his love that way, showing his love by what we're willing to do on his behalf. Does that make sense? It's a one-to-one comparison. As the Father loved me, so I loved you. It's an example of what the Holy Spirit does by changing the heart. Good, it shows that our hearts been changed through Christ. Yeah. Just reflecting. Right. Right. Even when we don't, when our flesh creeps in and makes us not want to do these things, even when we still do them, we abide there. It even further shows our hearts been changed. Yes. And you juxtapose the word fruit with Galatians five: the fruit mm. of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, right. kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Here's the fruit I'm talking about. Yeah. It's Galatians 5. Yeah. It's this kind of, of stuff. Which is heartfelt stuff. Incidentally, uh, which of those things can be done outside the context of other people? Right. If I'm in the middle of a field going, love, I just, there's not really <laughs> joy. It's not, it's not there. You share those things. You do those things. You, i got to edit that. Uh, <laughs> There, there, there is a, a, a giving that goes on with each of those expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody said to me one time, that's one fruit, by the way. It's not pieces of the fruit. You know, I have more mercy than I do kindness. So uh, I have more, uh, you know, whatever. It's all one. If you're lacking in one, you're really kind of... Anyway, that's a whole other lesson. But, um, all right. He's chosen us, not because of what we've done, but because He loves us. Because of His love, He calls us to obedience... His kind of obedience, like the obedience he gave his father. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. When you're in Christ, you're no longer in the world. You are different and distinct. Come out from among them, Paul would say later. I'm a Texan. When I go to Vermont, I stand out starkly. (laughs) You're not from here, are you? Nope. It's very obvious. How much more those born of God among the worldlings, among those not in Christ, should we be distinct? Yay? Yes? Yes? Yes, okay. I don't try to I don't try to ingratiate myself with the world by being like them. I'm distinct. Because God's called me to be distinct. In Christ I'm distinct. Yet we're set we are sent out into Egypt. 
God is going to send himself out. He's, I'm, I'm, I'm going out, I'm sending myself out into Egypt for judgment. We're sent out, why? For the ministry of reconciliation, Paul was saying, Corinthians. That's our, we're not there to condemn and judge. We, we call for holiness. We point out sin, but we call to reconciliation. We call to Christ. We call to uh, indiscriminately... We share the gospel so that in the holy, the working of the Holy Spirit discriminates and calls out His people from among them. That's what we do. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. First John five one. If you love God, if you're in Christ, you're going to love His people. You're going to be with them. You're going to want to serve them. You want to. We talked about this last week. The the thing that that I have recognized as a pattern in my own life and see it in others, if, if we're losing that battle with sin, we withdraw. We, we don't want to hear the preaching of God's word. We don't want to be around people who have fellowship with it. What's God doing in your life? What's Christ doing in you? We don't want to hear that because it's a, it's a dagger. I want, my, I want my darkness. I want my sin. I want my thing over Christ. And we want to withdraw from him. And yet, one of the one of the, the Binding things when Christ brings us back is that we love his law. We love his word and we love his people because he loves them. One of the major distinctives is the care those in Christ have for those Christ cares about. He loves his people, so should we. And we can only do that in the context of community. I'll make a distinction, he says. Um, any other comments? We're ending early. I mean, it's you know five after, so yeah. Um, if if we are really loved by God, the effect of that love should be us loving others, and that should be the change in us. Is we should the reason that we are lights to the world is because God is a light to us, mm. and we we pour out the fruit of the spirit and the the love of God and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and stuff, all that, and so. That's the change that we should be. It's, you know, there's a there's a, a blogger I read uh, a lot, Tim Brister. I don't know if y'all know who he is. He's a uh, he's a associate pastor out in Florida. And one of the things I love about reading his stuff is that he's very intentional about just what you're talking about. He had a neighbor recently who had got their house was caught on fire, and so he started blogging, Facebooking through, "How can I show the love of Christ to my neighbor who just?" lost their house. Very intentional. Help me think this through. What can we do that's not that, that's not based upon, hey, come to our church because we're going to give you stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Very intentional. I don't think that way enough. Sometimes I do. It's a rare occasion, and if I, it's a gift of the Spirit if I do because it's not how I'm built. But we should be built that way. We should be thinking that way, very intentionally. How do I bless someone else? How do I like someone else? How do I love them as Christ has loved us? All right. Yes. Any anything else? Okay. I'm going to pray. It's going to happen. Alan Smith. Right. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for these people who are here. The love they have for you. How you called them, sanctified them, and are sanctifying them. I pray that you do it more the Holy Spirit continue to grow the fruit of your joy that you had in sending Christ 
the cross, crushing him on our behalf, that he might see the fruit of his suffering in us as we reflect who he is and reflect his obedience to you by being obedient to him. Make us distinct. There's not enough distinction among us these days. And we pray that you work in us to uh, hate sin, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as you have loved them, and to be a blessing to those around us, calling them to to reconciliation with you. We'll pray for Philip as he stands in the pulpit today. Proclaiming your word, we pray that you would give him the words to speak, that you would give him the heart to say it rightly, that we would respond rightly, loving your law, loving your gospel, and willingly proclaiming it to those around us. In Christ's name, amen.